0: Uh, Hey, grab that Bible, and uh, if you have yours, open up to Philippians chapter 3. While you open, I will ask you a question, and it's one that you've probably heard before, but it's good to think about again. The question is this, and I encourage you to think seriously about it. Are you happy? Are you happy this morning? Perhaps you'd be, I don't know, happier if we had a different selection of cereals back there, we didn't get your favorite, or maybe you were bummed that brand flakes weren't actually on the table. I get it. Um, (laughs) Maybe you'd be happier if your circumstances were a little different, got to sleep in a little bit this morning, or wish that the announcement team went a little bit longer or shorter. I don't know. Maybe. It just depends on your on your uh, personality. What makes you happy? What is it that gives you that feeling of happiness? What is it that takes it away? It seems to be kind of a vulnerable thing, happiness does. It seems to be something that can change often and pretty quickly throughout the day. It's not a real head-scratcher. Most of us are happy when times are good. Most of us are not happy when times are not good. Our happiness is seems to be pretty circumstantial. In other words, our our happiness depends on what's going on around us. And if you're struggling with happiness this morning, wondering what the deal is with your joy, why it's fluctuating so much, changing all the time, maybe you're a person who you recognize, I'm just not happy a lot. In fact, I, I'm rarely happy. A text in God's word this morning might be of some help to you. Philippians chapter 3, the whole chapter, Christians are called to rejoice. Really, this whole book is a helpful reminder about the joy that we're to have in Christ, the joy that we're to have in the Lord. But as we come to chapter three, Paul actually commands joy in the lives of these believers. It's a joy that, that we're to have and we're to be happy. We're to be full of joy, but there's a, a catch. It's, it's joy that we are to have in the Lord, you see that in chapter 3, verse 1. It's a joy that, let me say it this way, it doesn't depend on your circumstances. It's a joy that you can have that won't change or, or, or rise or lower based on the kind of day that you're having. It's a real joy. It's a lasting joy. It's an amazing joy. And it's a joy that, that God gives and a joy that He wants he wants you to have. Because we're reminded to have this joy here in God's word, I think that tells us something really important. It's a joy that also isn't automatic. It's a joy that we're not going to have always. Let me say it this way. Maybe it's it's a joy that we understand that there's something that can stop it, something that can interrupt it, something that can mess it up. And There is. You could look at chapter 3 as what I believe are are some of the biggest threats to your joy. Where does Paul begin? In verses 1 to 11, he he talks about false teaching. (laughs) And you may be thinking, what in the world does that have to do with joy? Well, it actually has a a lot to do with joy. The false teachers or or Judaizers that Paul's talking about there at the beginning of chapter 3, they were adding something to the gospel. They were saying, hey, we don't have a problem with Jesus and the gospel. We think that's great, but you also are going to have to do some stuff. We're going to have to add some works to that gospel message for you to actually be saved. They were adding to it, and what that really helps us to understand is that they're diminishing what Jesus had done. They were making little of what Christ actually did on the cross. What he did is all that needs to be done to satisfy our debt of sin. And they were saying, actually, it's not quite enough. It's not quite enough. When we make less of Christ like that, we're making more of ourselves. And when you start to walk down that road, it's a dangerous road. Now, all of a sudden, you're putting confidence in you. You're putting trust in what you're capable of and in the works that you're doing. And your own righteousness maybe would be a a better word to say. You're starting to trust in your salvation because, well, you're, you're a pretty good person. You're obeying God's word pretty well. When that, you know, when what you depend on to save you is you and your works, well, then who needs Jesus? Now all of a sudden we're not thinking right about Christ. That's why Paul says in verse three of chapter three, he puts no confidence in himself, in his flesh. He he doesn't put any trust in what he's done to save him. Nothing could compare to Jesus. For Paul, nothing could compare to the surpassing worth of knowing the truth. Look at verse 8. That's what he says. He knows he's been forgiven of sin. He's been freed from the judgment he knew he deserved, and it wasn't because of him. It was because of the gospel. It was because of what Christ had done. Paul had a joy in Christ that could not be shaken. He knew he was righteous before God, and it wasn't because of anything he had done. It was because of what Jesus had done, and that kept his joy right where it should be. Verse 9 says he was confident in the righteousness he had, again, not by being obedient to God's law, but righteousness he had obtained by putting his faith in Christ. He, He can't say it any other way. The joy he has, knowing that he's right before God, has nothing to do with his own righteousness. It's because of what Christ has done. And that truth, it gave Paul a foundation. It gave him a, a tremendous joy that now doesn't really have anything to do with circumstances. Life is going to be hard. There are going to be trials. There are going to be not just bad hair days, but really bad days. And Paul says joy that he has in Christ isn't affected by those things because he's right before God because of what Christ has done. Christians should have this kind of joy. God wants us to have that kind of joy. There's a permanent reason for joy, and Paul's just making this crystal clear. So it's so important. He's just explaining it in chapter 3, these Things that threaten this rejoicing in the Lord, this joy we're to have in the Lord, this joy that can be stolen from a believer. Thinking you don't need Jesus as much as you do, that's going to steal your joy really fast. Not thinking right about the gospel, it's going to steal your gratitude. It's going to start to put more confidence in you, and before you know it, joy is gone. That's kind of verses 1 to 11, thinking you're better than you are, that's going to Keep you there, but so will not thinking right about sin. And that's what we talked about last Wednesday, verses 12 to 16. When a believer doesn't think right about his sin, it's going to steal their joy. It's going to keep them living in in a way that they're not supposed to. Sin in the life of a believer, we talked about it, it can rob you of assurance. Often in the life of a new Christian, a young Christian, when sin rises up again, instead of thinking about your need to grow, you begin to question the reality of your salvation. And that is something that we shouldn't do. We're not doubt our salvation, but instead see our need to grow. Sin can cause you to doubt what God's done in your life. It can lead you astray, not only down a path of more sin, but again, just questioning, doubting, ultimately never growing, never maturing in your faith. And that's just gonna be a life of joylessness. Not only are you gonna be ineffective as a believer, but you're gonna miss out on the joy that you should have as somebody who's growing in their relationship with Christ. Christians know have to know that they're not going to be perfect, that they're not going to be free from sin until they're with with Christ in glory. We long for that day. We wait for that day. But until then, we find joy in this life by by growing in our faith, by growing in our holiness, by growing and understanding God's expectations for our life and giving our every effort to do that, to live that way. Living the way God calls us Us to to live will will save us from a lot of heartache. You'll avoid a lot of consequences of sin. That too will produce a lot of joy in your life. So we we see those first two things. Now our text this morning, something else that can steal our joy, that can keep us from rejoicing in the Lord, and that is worldliness. Worldliness, We, we still live in this world here, dealing with sin for sure. It's a a world just desperately trying to knock God out of his number one spot in our lives. So many things that try to convince us that they can give us joy, that they can give us satisfaction. There's always this competition for that number one spot in our lives. Worldliness helps us think about this and I think our big idea this morning, just to kind of help us find our way, chasing happiness in this world will leave you joyless. That's going to be true for the Christian and non-Christian. If you chase happiness only in this world, that's going to be a life void of joy. Grateful for the way that, that Joe read our text this morning, but let me just read it for us again one more time to put it into our minds. Philippians 3.17 says, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory, and they glory in their shame. Minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. If I gave you enough time, I'm pretty confident you could pick out those two sort of command verbs that sort of bookend this passage. In verse 17, that verb imitate, and then in chapter 4, verse 1, this command to stand firm. And, and we see those. Those are kind of easy to spot if we were to look at it long enough. And we, we start to understand Paul wants these believers to imitate him. Uh, we, we see that he wants them to imitate and stand firm in their faith. And, and those by themselves, that's a great message. That's a truth that every Christian needs to hear and, and embrace. But what specifically, though, is it that Paul once imitated, and why do we need to stand firm? And for that, we just go to what's in the middle of those, to the, the center here, and reread verses 18 and 19. He says, For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even with tears, they're enemies of the cross of Christ. And just... Destruction, God is their appetite, glory is in their shame. They set their minds on earthly things. Paul is warning believers about that which can steal your joy, and it's it's worldliness. You, you can't truly be a follower of Christ and have a mind that's set on earthly things. When you read verse 20, you see that, Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And and again, it's it's this amazing contrast. Joe is absolutely right. It's it's an incredible contrast to help us see the difference between worldly unbelievers and heavenly-minded Christians, those citizens of God's kingdom. Unbelievers, Paul says, they walk as enemies of the cross. Their God is their appetite. Their glory is their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things, but verse 20, our citizenship is not here. Young people, Christians are different. That's what Paul is saying. We're going to be so different. Our citizenship, where we belong, it's not here. It's not here. We belong to God's kingdom and we learn from Paul the, the true dangers of worldliness here pretty quickly. I just want to say, anytime you hear that word worldliness, teenagers often start to think, okay, great, it's going to be a sermon about technology. Here we go. Put your phone away. It's going to be a sermon about the kind of friends I have. I get it, Pastor Jay. This is going to be a sermon about, you know, my love of sports and I'll... I'll not watch ESPN this afternoon, and I'll just hang with my mom because it's Mother's Day instead, which you should, by the way. Um, You know what's interesting here? Those are factors of worldliness, but that's not the main problem. Worldliness, and I want you to think about this and, and try to jot it down, worldliness is dangerous because it leads our heart try to find joy in something that actually can't give it. I'm going to say that again. Worldliness is dangerous because it leads our heart to try to find joy or happiness or satisfaction or whatever word you want to use, fulfillment. Worldliness tries to lead us to find it in something that can never, ever satisfy you. Worldliness robs us of the joy that we're meant to find in our relationship with Christ. It distracts us. It pulls us away from true, lasting happiness. Listen again. Worldliness, it isn't ultimately about the wrong friends. It's not ultimately about bad time management. It's not about having too many apps on your phone. It's about your heart. That's the big problem with worldliness. It's a matter of what you love and what you serve. And let me say it this way where you belong. Worldliness wants to hold you captive to a a lesser joy. It wants to, I don't know, you to love the things that are here. It wants you to serve yourself. It wants you to feel like, I like it here, I like this place. Bible describes this world in John 3 as a place that hates the light of Christ and loves the darkness of sin. I don't mean that you like some of the common graces we have in this world. I mean that you like the darkness of sin. This is what Paul is pointing at and getting to. Worldliness wants to make you think that the only joy you'll ever find, the only joy you'll ever have is found here on this earth. The reality is that's only keeping you from the real and true source of joy that comes in a relationship with God. So... This world is full of stuff that's fun. There are moments of temporary satisfaction, and you can enjoy a sense of happiness for a while. But listen to me the problem is that stuff doesn't last. We foolishly believe that this world can give us a joy that will last and that it'll make us happy forever. But the truth is, it will only leave you empty. May last for a moment, but in the end, you'll just be left chasing something else. I don't have to give you a lot of illustrations for this because it happens to you all the time. A present you really want, something you're saving for, working hard for, maybe just birthday list, Christmas list, You tell grandma and grandpa, please take the next six years of birthdays and Christmases and mush those together and buy me this one thing. And then you get it and you're over the moon for about eight minutes. That's what we're talking about. That joy that eventually leaves and now you're left looking for something else. Paul is saying the joy that we can have in Christ is a joy that will leave you full and satisfied and never looking for the next thing. It's an amazing joy that we should have. So worldliness, I think I've accomplished it. We get it. It's dangerous. So what do we do? What's the point? Paul gives us Four principles to just respond to worldliness and fight it and protect the joy that we're meant to have in Christ. Let me give them to you. Four principles to fight against worldliness. Number one, copy the right people or follow the right people. Follow the right people. Paul tells the Philippians, verse 17, to imitate him. He wants them to copy him. He encourages them to keep their eyes on those who walk or live like he does, who who just live the way that he lives following Christ. He's saying, follow me, act like me, imitate me, learn from me, do what I do, say what I say, think how I think. Paul is just helping them to understand there is an example for them to follow, and not just Paul, but there are others. He says, join all of us, even these others who were already imitating him. Verse 17, watch them do what they do, and you say, great, Paul, what is that? What are you doing that these believers were to copy? What's the point for us? What is it exactly in your life that we're supposed to, to grab onto here? And the good news is we don't have to go very far, just up the page a few verses, up back into verse 12 and 16. This is a great thing to think about. You know, Paul isn't perfect because of that. He's absolutely thinking right about sin. He understands that he's still dealing with the consequences of sin, and he's ever aware that he needs to chase after holiness, pursuing living like Christ as much as he can. He's motivated in his relationship with Christ. That's a pretty great example. Somebody who who understands, look, I mean, I do want you to follow me, Paul's saying, but but here's what I just said. I'm not perfect. I'm going to mess up, but I'm going to think right about my sin. My sin leads me to pursue Christ even more. I know I'm not where I want to be yet. I need to dig into God's word even more. I need to know what it says. I need to learn from it. I need to submit to it. I want to do that. And I'm motivated, not because I'm trying to look some way in church. I'm not trying to be like head deacon or anything. I just want to be like Christ. That's a great example. Of course, in junior high, we have lots of examples around us. Lots of leaders in this group not your peers, by the way. Some of you are looking to the left and right of you like, what, really? No, the the leaders in this room, intentionally bringing in mature Christians, guys and men and women who are following Christ, who are trying their best to do what Paul says here. They're here to say to you, yeah, follow me as I'm following Christ follow me, do what i do, learn from me, ask me questions. like that's the greatest example i think i could give you as we think about who we should be following. They're in your life already. Are they perfect? No. Just like Paul. Nope. They're struggling with sin. But like Paul, they're fighting sin. Like Paul, they're they're letting that sin help them see they need to still pursue Christ. And following Christ and living the way He's called them to live. You need to copy what believers around us are, are doing. And if you need something more specific than that, I could think of Titus 2, verses 2 to 7, just a helpful passage of scripture that lays this out. It says: Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, not enslaved to much wine, teaching what's good, that they may encourage the younger women to love their husbands and love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds. I get that. Some of that stuff's a little bit ahead of where we're at in life, um, but there, this is a great pattern, a great example. of Older men and older women in the church, God did this on purpose. More mature believers who've not only experienced more life, but understand way more about the word of God than we do. Help us understand how we're to live and how we're to apply God's word in our life where we're at. It's a beautiful thing. So follow the right people. That will help us resist keeping our, or putting our eyes back onto the world. Number two, recognize the dangers of worldliness. Recognize the dangers of worldliness. You might need glasses. That's, sorry, I made that so small. Why is Paul so upset? Verse 18, he says, uh, he's he's recounting this with, with tears. Why the tears, Paul? Well, He's talking about people who he thought were Christians, people who claimed at least claimed to be those who were following Christ, but now they're not. This they're now they're 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 worldly. They're enemies of God now, Paul says, enemies of the cross. And there's really just no other way to read that. Worldliness, it's so destructive. It makes you an enemy of the cross of Christ. Not neutral. It's an enemy. Strong language there. And that word enemy, it's the same that's used in Romans 5, verses 8 to 10. God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Paul's just reminding you of where you're at when you're letting worldliness take over, using a word that's meant to make you think of life before Christ, how I used to be before the gospel supposedly saved me or or made me this new creation. And what he's saying is you're you're not saved at all. You're you're actually just revealing that you're still an enemy of the cross. You can't have both. It's really what's here. You can't have the world and your faith. Maybe thinking about that verse where Jesus said you can't serve two masters, but it's really the verses right before it that we need to hear. Matthew six nineteen. Listen to this. Jesus says, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness." No one can serve two masters, Jesus says, where you'll either hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. Worldliness makes you an enemy of God. And back to our text, verse 19, it will only end in destruction. Some weird words here by Paul, your God is your belly, your glory and your shame, your mindset on earthly things. All of those Phrases meant to point to just one truth here. What, What people want most is gonna just be right here in this world. There's no room for Jesus. There's no place for him. They want the praises of men. They're enamored with what this life is all about and what it offers. This is where they belong. This is where they find their reward. This is what they live for. No concern for Christ. No awe for the Savior no thought about God, about being in his presence, no concern for judgment, no desire for his reward. And that's just so different from Paul, the way he thinks about Christ, how much he wants to be like Jesus and be with him. That needs to just be our attitude as well. But one thing that will keep you from I don't know, sort of drifting into worldliness is remembering the seriousness of it. When I start to be enamored with the way this world operates and thinks and I start to think less of Christ and his word, I'm in dangerous territory. If we're going to win this war against worldliness, not only do we follow the right people and recognize these dangers, but let me give you another one quick. Number three, be homesick. Be homesick, verses 20 to 21. This is obviously for the, the Christian. Paul's tugging on your heartstrings about your real citizenship, about where you truly belong. If you are in Christ, young Christian, listen to me. You do not belong here. Your citizenship is in heaven, and you're to crave it, and you're to desire it, you're to think about it because you belong in heaven with Christ and here, Paul reminds the Philippians of this great promise, a great truth. We're not waiting for anything else to happen in this life. Uh, nothing else needs to happen in order for Christ to return. We're just waiting for the Savior to return. And even a young Christian's mind should think, I kind of hope it's today. It'd be awesome. It'd be great. That's what Paul's doing here. He's, he, he, he's, We want Christ to return and when he does, Paul's just trying to spark our interest. God's going to do something amazing. We're going to get new bodies. We're going to be given this body that's fit for eternity. And and we shouldn't doubt that because Christ has the power and the authority and the ability to do that. We're going to get a body that can last and, and, and be designed to sustain eternal life with Christ. It's awesome. And that should get us thinking about that a little bit more. And he's just trying to push that get excited button about heaven. You may even think about that as a, as a Christian. When was the last time you thought about heaven? When was the last time you considered being in, in the presence of God and being with him forever, being in a place where there's no more sin and being in that place where everything is how it's supposed to be? We have a lot of distractions around us, don't we? A lot of things that pull our attention away, away from this thought that we're supposed to have. Colossians 3, verse 1, if you've been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Set your mind on things above. Oh, We need to be more homesick. We need to think about heaven way more, the place where we're going to spend in comparison way more time, 80, 90, 100 years of life, whatever God may give you is a blink compared to eternity. Be homesick. Last, quickly, commit to your convictions. Chapter 4, verse 1, how do we make sure we keep our joy in the Lord? How do we fight against worldliness? Be devoted, be committed to what you believe. Paul just says, stand firm. You know what? That's a great way to say it too. Stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in what you know and what you believe. Know why you believe it. Own it. It takes resolve. It takes an intentional refusal to, to let go of who we are in Christ. This dogged effort to stand firm in the Lord. You can't just sit on the couch and hope that it happens. It takes real work and effort. And we talked about that Wednesday Chasing holiness, pursuing Christ, trying to grow in our faith. It takes work. We have to make time to be in the Word and to try to learn it and understand it and apply it. It doesn't happen by accident. We can't just do nothing and think that we're going to be immune to worldliness. Let me just give you one verse Ephesians 6. Paul there writes, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. We've got to do what we can to stand firm. We've got to know how to develop these beliefs and convictions. We have to make sure that we're doing our best to live them. You may be struggling with joy this morning, wondering why you're rarely happy, there's a great lesson here. Worldliness will steal your joy. This is where the non-Christian lives, by the way. You you live in a world that never really can give you a, a lasting joy. You're always chasing the next thing. You may find it in a in a moment, but the next moment it's it's gone. You're always Thinking about joy and happiness, and it's always in connection to your circumstances. Happiness comes when times are good, and it's gone when times are bad. There is a joy in the Lord that can never be shaken. But for the Christian, worldliness is dangerous too. The world is constantly holding out to you these joy substitutes. It's a fake joy and it won't last and it's pulling you away from the only one that can actually give you real joy. It's a danger. It'll steal your joy and you're not immune from its temptations. You have to do something to fight against it. And this is a pretty good list. I read this great sentence and I want to end with this. This is what resisting worldliness looks like. You strap yourself to the grace of Jesus and you say, Lord, today would you close my ears and would you shut my eyes and would you guard my heart to all the things that the world wants to tell me will give me satisfaction and will only make me want those things more than you. Father, help us to not forget your word. May we delight in your testimonies. May we sing and pray and meditate on your word day and night. We may find what's truly valuable, that we may see how rich your word is. Father, by your spirit, help us not dismiss your word. Write these truths on our heart. I'd help these young people win the war against worldliness, and give them a joy that can only be found in You. I pray in Christ's name, Amen.